It's good to see you tonight. If you would uh, grab a Bible or electronic device, seems like I say that more and more. Uh, would like for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15 tonight. As you're turning there, we want to say welcome to you. We are glad that you've come to be with us, and it is our hope that you are blessed and edified by the study of the evening. Uh, as you can see from the screen, we're going to be talking about the lost son tonight. Often, uh, this story is re referred to as the prodigal son, and we'll talk about that word prodigal in just a little bit. But I want to begin by just reading the story of the lost son from Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. <clears throat> this speaking of Jesus says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a portion of the goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there rose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no man or no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger? I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, and put it on him. My pages are stuck together. And put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here, and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now I recognize that there's a lot more to this story. There's a lot more details to this story. We've, we've got other characters to deal with, such as the older brother. We're not going to do that tonight. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the, the, the literal application of this representing the publicans and sinners and the older brother representing... Uh, the Pharisees and scribes. That, that is very true. What I want to do, though, is focus on this son, this younger son, this lost son, and learn from his story as Jesus gives us this parable tonight. So jumping right back into the text, it says, he had a, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. This younger son... Although he is not entitled as to, to as much inheritance as the older brother, as the custom in Israel was that the oldest brother would get a double portion of the inheritance, he was entitled, this younger brother was entitled to some inheritance. And this was actually uh, more common than you might think for someone to go to their father during their lifetime and ask for that inheritance. Uh, especially among the Romans and the Syrophoenicians, this was a custom. And so it's not shocking that a son might actually go to the father and do this. Uh, this property that was given to him is obviously what we would call movable property, possibly money, as it says that he gathered all those things together and he took them with him. 
And I want you to notice, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this, over and over we're going to talk about this, that this son gathered everything together and it says that he journeyed to a far country. I want you to notice the phrase, not many days after. So he goes to his dad and he says, give me the portion of the things that belong to me. And it says that he gave it to him and not many days after. I think we can, if you want to use the word surmise from this, he knows exactly what he wants to do. He's already left in his mind. Not many days after, it says he gets all of his stuff together and he takes this journey. He already had plans to leave, but he needed resources. And the problem is, if he doesn't have resources, he can't go out and live on his own. And so without these resources that the father gives him, he'd have to stay home and he'd be subject to his father and depend upon his father. You ever stopped and asked, why? Why go to the far country? I mean, you got your money, right? Why not just stay home and enjoy your money? And I think the answer to that question is quite simple. Because what this man is wanting to do, he cannot do at the father's house. His father won't allow it. And he knows I must distance myself from my father if I want to fulfill the desires that I have. He wanted freedom. He wanted the freedom to choose. He wanted freedom from authority. He wanted freedom from relying on his father. He also wanted freedom from rules. He wants freedom from accountability. You know, this is quite common. I've got an 18-year-old son at home, so we're living through some of this right now. And I don't mean the lost son per se, but, but he's starting to think he's an adult. And, 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 you know, mom and dad aren't as smart as they think they are. You, you've all been there. You'll, those of you who have grown kids, right? And you know, as, as kids start to reach an age where they think that they're grown, they start thinking about these things. Well, now I'm free. I'm free to do this, and I'm free to do that. And, and now no one's going to guide me and tell me how to live my life. And, and that's exactly why this guy's distancing himself from his father. Is his, his seeking is all about freedom. He wants freedom. But notice that he wasted his possessions. He goes into the far country, and he doesn't invest his possessions. It says that he wasted his possessions. And some people have criticized the father in the story and said, well, why did the father give him the money to begin with? Let's be very careful, because number one, the father in the story represents God. But secondly, God blesses everyone with resources. Jesus said he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. And so God blesses us all with time and talent and resources. And what we do with them is up to us. And so the father gives him what is rightfully his. And he goes out and he wastes it. And, and this is the thing about the far country. He's gone there to find fulfillment. The problem is the way he's seeking fulfillment, he is destined to waste his possessions. Because you will spend and spend and spend trying to fulfill yourself. And eventually, your resources run out. And that's what's happening here. There is no future in this life. 
There's nothing to look forward to. He's just going to live this life this way until everything runs out. And he's wasting every blessing God ever gave him. And if you're in the far country today, if you're living in sin, I want you to know that you are wasting every blessing that God has ever given you and wants to give you. It's a waste. And that's what this young man is doing. He's wasting his life away. And then it says, I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to read from 1 John chapter 3 for a moment. We're going to read four verses from 1 John chapter 3. John writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now listen to verse 8 very closely. You know, for being the disciple of love, uh, John says some very strong things. I just want to note that for a moment. Because this is a very hard thing to hear. John says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So here's the evidence that someone is a child of the Father, a child of God, if you will. What is the evidence? That that person is not practicing sin in their life. They're not living in sin. They're practicing, as he says here, righteousness, doing things that are according to God's will. And, and here's why this really hurts. This is why this is strong language. Because if we're not living that way, we're denying our sonship. That's what this boy wanted to do. He didn't want to be under the Father anymore. He wants to go live life on his own. He wants to separate himself from the Father. But here's the thing. You don't get to have your cake and eat it too. When you separate yourself from God, you're now under the power of the devil. That's the reality. You know why Paul uses the phrase in 1 Corinthians 5, deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved? Because when you withdraw from someone and you put them outside the kingdom, you know where they're at? They're under the power and the influence of the devil. You're either in the kingdom and in Christ and you're a child of God, or you're outside the kingdom and you're under the power and the influence of the devil. And that's hard to think about, isn't it? But he actually uses stronger language than that. He says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now listen to verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Friends, listen very closely. Jesus Christ did not come to destroy the works of the devil so that God's children could reestablish that work that Satan did. And when we move away from the Father's house and we go into the far country and we begin to practice lawlessness and unrighteousness, what we are doing is aligning ourselves with the enemy of God and becoming the child of the devil. Notice what he says about being born of God. He says that one is born of God and God's seed abides in him. You, can, can you think of anywhere else in Scripture where it makes this connection of being born again and that, that idea of seed abiding in us? 
Notice 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23 where he says, Having been born again, just like John was talking about, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is his grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the, of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word, listen, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. What are we rejecting? The gospel. When a child of God walks away, they're refusing and denying their sonship, and they're living contrary to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't make us a child of God just because we've been baptized. That certainly is what makes us a child initially. But we must follow Christ. We must live for God. We must stay in the Father's house, if you will. And abide in him. This son doesn't want that. He wants no part of it. John uses this same language in his gospel. Notice he says, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? And then he answers his own question. He says, Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. It's called the far country for a reason. Because when you're in the far country and you're living in sin, you cannot be any further from God, any further from the father. It's kind of hard to think about, isn't it? See, there's not really a middle ground. We like to think there's this middle ground. But the reality is, we have to make a choice of who we're going to follow and how we're going to live. We're going to either be a child of God or we're going to be a child of Satan. We're going to do the works of our Father in heaven or we're going to do the works of the devil. Jesus makes it very simple. Simple choice. Do you think this young man knows that? Do you think when he goes out and he leaves the father's house that he, is go, that he is thinking within himself, it's time to go follow the devil? He's blind. He has, he has no clue. What's he doing? He just wants to go experience life. He's curious about freedom, what that might entail. I'm sure the, the imagination of what it might be like to control and rule your own life has really grabbed a hold of him, and it's pulling his desire. Unfortunately, he finds out. As Jesus continues the parable, it says, Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. You know, I heard the term prodigal son all my life growing up, and I had no idea what that word meant, prodigal. Prodigal means dissolute or profligate. You say, well, thanks for that. That is very helpful. I think it's actually profligate. See, I can't even say the word. What does that mean? Well, let's define these terms so we can understand what it means. Because I think it, it really help us understand. So profligate means recklessly extravagant. And extravagant just means lacking restraint in how you spend your money or your resources. Recklessly extravagant or wasteful in the use of resources, licentious, 
which means a life void of morality and discipline, indulging freedom to excess, unrestrained by law or morality. Let's just summarize what prodigal means. It means he is living in lawlessness. There are no boundaries. There are no confinements. There are no constraints. He's just doing what feels good. Just doing what feels right. Paul uses uh, an analogy in Philippians 3 where he says their God is their belly. That's what this man's doing. He's not reasoning about whether or not his decisions are good or right or they're pleasing to the Father. He's just doing what feels good, whatever makes him happy. And that's the world we live in. Do what makes you happy. God wants you to be happy. Really? Is that what the Bible says? God wants you to do what makes you happy? Well, first off, we need to find what the word happy means. Because as we'll see in this story, this young man is not happy. I'm sure he's enjoying himself. But you know what? That only lasts for so long. Notice verse 14. But when he had spent all. This is inevitable. It's inevitable. He's broke. And where's he at? Well, he's nowhere near the family. Nowhere near anyone that could help or assist him. He's chosen to come to this place And now he's broke. And then what happens? There's a severe famine in the land. Where was he going? The euphoria, I guess. The utopia. I'm going to the place where I can cut loose. I guess that people still say that, right? (laughs) Cut loose. Let loose. I'll do what I want. I'll have fun. And I'll have a fulfilled life. What happens? Look, this is, this is the, the, the far country is not the land of freedom. It's not the land of plenty. It's the land of famine. And there's always a famine. Your resources run out. When your resources run out, guess who runs out next? All your associations. You know why? Because everybody else that lives in the far country, they're all egocentric and egotistical and narcissistic and prideful too. They're all self-centered. And they're looking out for themselves. You know how I know that? Because I've lived in the far country. I've had those relationships. And the moment you can't add to the fun, well, you're just not part of the fun anymore. A famine arises. He doesn't have anything. He's got nothing left. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6, this might seem like a strange passage to go to because it really deals with widows. Um, But he's talking about younger widows and he's, He's saying that he wants the younger widows to marry and and, and to be homekeepers in those type of things. And he talks about the reason why. And he said because when they're idle, they might just live in self-indulgence or pleasure, if you will. And he says he, she, rather, is self-indulgent, is dead even while she lives. Now, I don't think this is a gender-specific statement. It's a general statement about humanity that he's relating to. To women who live in pleasure. But the same is true of men. When you live in self-indulgence, when that's what defines your life, you are dead while you're alive. And that kind of sounds strange, right? Dead while you're alive. But what does it mean, dead while you're alive? Well, the father said when the son returned, this my son was dead and is alive. Now, perhaps that means two things. 
that he really thought his son was dead because of where he was. I'm sure some of y'all have experienced that fear. When your child leaves, they disappear and they don't communicate. And you know where they're at. They're in the far country. Certain that's a fear. But he's also dead in another way. His life is void of anything that is good. We have this phrase, dead man walking. What's his future look like? What is the future for a person who lives in sin? Death and destruction, and that's about it. This boy wants to live in an undisciplined manner. And parents, listen very closely. The reason why you need to discipline your kids is because undisciplined children turn into undisciplined men. And undisciplined men end up in jail or on drugs or alcoholics or dead. He wants to be undisciplined. He's, that's the life he wants to live. But if you live without discipline, you live without those restraints in your life, you're a dead man walking. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 6 says this, The wind blows to, uh, to the south and goes around the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Why are we, why are we talking about the weather? You know what he's describing? He's describing what we see on the weather called, that they call the hydrologic cycle, where the water evaporates out of the sea, and then it goes up over the land, and then it rains down, and it runs out, uh, out down in the river, back to the sea, and then it just goes over and over. And what happens? The sea never fills up, even though there's water flowing into it. Why? Because the water that's flowing into the sea came from the sea. Is he, is he trying to teach us about weather? No, he's teaching us something we already know about weather to, to teach us about life. And that is that the eye and the ear, they're never satisfied. God did not create our bodies, our flesh, to be satisfied. And what we do is we'll fill that up faster and faster and faster. And it's kind of like a hole with a cup in the bottom of it. If you pour fast enough, you'll get the delusion that your cup is full. But as soon as you stop pouring, it just empties out. It's futility. It's vanity. It's, it's grasping for the wind. It's trying to catch something that's not catchable. And yet people spend their entire life trying to catch happiness and peace and fulfillment in sin. There's never enough. You know, before this, boy, what's truly, truly mind-blowing to me is that you can even be physically present in the Father's house, but be in the far country in here and in here. I'll tell you how I know that, because I spent years in that position. We were always at church, <laughs> weren't we, Dad? <laughs> we didn't have Wednesday night services at Allison, but if, if we were having church, we were there. And I was there, leading singing, leading prayers, helping with communion, reading scripture. But you know where I was at, mentally, emotionally, in the far country? Because I didn't live my life. For God. I didn't live in righteousness. I came to the Father's house. But when I got out, when I walked out the doors, I lived for me. 
How was your life? This young man was already there before he ever left. That's why he came to the father and said, I want my inheritance. Because he's already been imagining where he could go and what he could do and how he would do it. He was already in the far country. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Listen to verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap everlasting life or eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Listen, you cannot mock God. You know what that means? You're not going to trick God. You're going to pull the wool over his eyes. And what we do is we try to sow all these things and then we pray for a crop failure. And that's not how it works. If you sow something, you're going to get a harvest. That's not an option. If you sow fleshly things, carnal things, you will reap rottenness. That's what you're going to reap. You will have a harvest. So what do you sow? What was he sowing? What did he expect to reap? You know, I think sometimes we just think that the harvest is not going to be as bad as we think it is. And God plainly says this, do not be deceived. You will destroy your name, your reputation. You will destroy your relationships. And you will destroy every semblance of peace that you have in your life. That's the corruption. That's the harvest that comes from sowing sin. Let's get back to our story. After this man runs out of resources, it says that he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. And this word, joined, is a very strong word. It means to cleave to someone. Understand what it means when it says joined himself to a citizen. He has nothing and no one. And so he essentially is going to someone in the far country, a citizen of that place, and saying, let me live here and I'll work for you. He has left a loving father, all in the pursuit of freedom, and now he has aligned himself, joined himself to a hard taskmaster. He's become a slave. All in his pursuit of freedom, he ends up being a slave anyway, but this servitude is much worse. This man sends him into the fields to feed swine. And it says he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swines did eat. Now my understanding of the pods is, is it's similar to what we have on our locust trees. If you've seen these locust tree pods, uh, it's what hogs would eat, but it's not really for human consumption. But that's where he's at. He's in a pitiful state. He's not only out there working for the master of the unclean, feeding the unclean animals, but wanting to eat with the unclean and eat what the hogs eat. He wants to eat livestock food. This is pathetic. You know what we call this? Rock bottom. You ever heard about rock bottom? Some of you have been to rock bottom, haven't you? He's as low as he's going to get. As low as he's going to get. 
You know what's tragic is sometimes that's where people have to be before they actually have their eyes open. Where's your friends at, guy? I mean, you're working for somebody and it says no man gave him anything. Why work for the guy? Maybe all he's given him is a bed. I don't know. What I do know is this is not a good situation. And you think about how this pursuit started with all these aspirations of how wonderful it's going to be, how free he's going to live, how not being under the Father's rule and authority and boundaries is going to really bless his life. And he ends up right here at the pig pen. I don't know if you ever work with hogs. They are nasty creatures. Nasty creatures. He's looking inside that pig pen full of nasty stuff and looking at what they're eating, lying there on the ground with mud and other stuff. Going, that looks pretty good. No one to help. You know why? Because there's no love in the far country. There's no loyalty in the far country. There's no family, no support. He's alone, all alone, isolated in the world. John chapter 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Do you see the slavery? Not just to the taskmaster, but the slavery that he's in. A slave to his impulses, a slave to his desires. He is being ruled and controlled by his impulses. That's what he was trying to escape when he left the father's house. He didn't want to be controlled. But guess what? You're always going to have someone control you. Do you know that? You can't escape being controlled by someone. He's controlled by the devil. This is why Paul tells us, you're going to either be a servant of righteousness or you're going to be a servant of unrighteousness. But you've only got two choices. You can align yourself with the devil, or you can align yourself with God, but there is no middle ground. And either way, you're going to be a servant. You're going to be a servant. This illusion that we can be free from restraints is nothing but a fairy tale. And we see where he's wound up as a slave. The Bible says of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do we really grasp what that means? That Moses could have been called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Pharaoh was, by all understanding, the most powerful and probably wealthy man in the world at that time. And essentially what that means is if you've got a desire, you can have it. Especially if you are the son of Pharaoh's daughter. If he wanted women, he could have had them. If he wanted money, it could have been his. Wealth, power, substances, alcohol. I mean, when you're at the top of the world, people don't tell you no. But what did he choose? He chose to suffer affliction. Now that probably seems very crazy to a lot of people. That seems insane. Why would someone choose suffering over pleasure? 
And see, he juxtaposes those two things here. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why choose affliction instead of pleasure? Well, here's why. Look at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses made this decision because he had a forward focus. He wasn't looking now, what pleasure can I gain now? He was looking forward to the future. He wasn't going to waste his substance. He looked ahead. And this is our problem. Most of the time, the problem with people and how they get to the far country is we want instant gratification. He wanted his inheritance now so I can use it now. Why do you think that when people preach the prosperity gospel that thousands and thousands of people pack in those buildings? Because they want the inheritance now. And it doesn't work that way with God. He got his inheritance. And those pleasures lasted for a little while. And make no mistake about it, there is pleasure in sin. We can't lie to our children and say that sin is not pleasurable. They're going to learn that it is. And, and that's not the problem. Sin is pleasurable. The problem with it is that pleasure has poison in it. It's poisonous pleasure. It comes with shame and regret and eventually death if we're not careful. And Moses could see that. Moses could see what's mostly important. What's more important is that I look forward. And if that means that I suffer affliction, I'll suffer affliction because the future reward is eternal and much better than the pleasure that only lasts for a moment. I want to read a story from Genesis chapter 25 to sort of uh, dive into this a little more and, and see how this truth is expressed in story form. And, and this is not just a story. This is, this is a historical event. This is about the two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, it says, cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. That is, he was tired and it says, Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore was his name Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And you know, this is so typical of siblings. <laughs> These guys obviously didn't get along very well anyway. But you could just see Jacob's over there cooking, and Esau walks in, and he's worn out. He's been out all day, and he is tired. And he comes in, and he says, Hey, give me some of your food. And Jacob goes, All right, what you give me? I mean, just like a sibling, right? It's going to cost you. And so Jacob, you know, he just takes his shot. Sell me your birthright. Now, uh, I don't know what kind of business you do, but, but if, you, if you put these two things on the scale, birthright, that double inheritance, you're going to trade that for a bowl of stew? I mean, I, th I think this is beans, really, like a pot of beans. I like a good pot of beans. But that's crazy, right? Nope, nobody's going to take this deal. But go ahead, Jacob, take your shot. Make the offer. Might, might as well start high, right, and work down. But you see, Esau, he's deceived. And Esau says, look, I'm about to die. So what's this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Let's stop right there for just a moment and think about what just happened. 
Jacob says, hey, you want some of my food? That's fine. Give me your birthright. Sell it to me for this, for this pot of beans, bowl of beans. And he says, well, you know, if I don't have those beans, I'm going to die anyway. And, and the birthright will be useless. So you know what Jacob's thinking? This is a terrible deal. <laughs> this is a terrible deal. If you're really going to do this, you swear. You know what we would say? If we're going to do this, you're going to sign the contract. Because this is a done deal. Once you, once you take the leap, it's mine. Swear. And he swore. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, this is such an impactful story that when the Hebrew, is, Hebrew writer is writing to the Jews about backsliding, about turning back, he reminds them of Esau, and here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 12. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." You ever seen somebody that's addicted to something, that they want something so bad that they feel like they're going to die if they don't get it? Well, I have, and I've been there. And I'll tell you, that's how a lot of temptation works in our life, whether you're addicted to a drug or a substance or just some ungodly desire that is within yourself. You will convince yourself, I've got to have it, I must have it, and I'll do anything to get it. And I'm going to die if I don't get it. No, you're not. I tell my kids that all the time. Daddy, this is hard. You won't die. You won't die. You know what Toya says? Cry me a river. You're not going to die. And then they do something. And I'll say, was that hard? And they'll say, yes. And I said, did it kill you? No. We can't allow ourselves to deceive ourselves into thinking it's much worse than it really is. Temptation is hard. It's hard, but it's not going to kill you. You're not going to die. You ever fasted for several days? Toward the end of day one's pretty hard, and you'll feel like, I need some food or I'm going to die. No, you're not. And that's his problem. He's hungry. He's allowing his body to dictate what he does, and he makes a terrible decision, a terrible choice, and then immediately, what happens the next day? He wakes up. The food has been digested. His stomach rumbles. He's hungry again. And then what? Then we recognize I made a terrible trade. He traded something that was lasting for something that lasted but for a moment. And that's what we do when we live in pleasure. That's what we do when we give in to temptation. We're making a bad trade. And you know what? He couldn't take it back. He sought it diligently with tears. He wanted his inheritance back, but it's too late. You swore. You made an oath. You made your decision. There's nothing you can do about it. But when he came to himself, what a powerful statement that Jesus made. When he came to himself, he was insane. He was blind. This young man was doing these things because he was just oblivious to the destruction and chaos that surrounded him. 
And what, what did it take? It took rock bottom, and all of a sudden he wakes up, and he sees himself, and he goes, this is crazy. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. See, freedom is not freedom at all. It's not freedom at all. He lived as a free man for a while. You know what he realized? It's better to serve in the Father's house than to be free in the land of sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You know what's better to serve in the Father's house? Because the Father provides. And the Father gives peace. And the Father fulfills. The Father blesses. It's better to serve in the Father's house. He's recognized this. I'm not, I, don't, I don't have to be a son. I'll just go be a servant. That's his plan. I'm going to go to my Father and I'm going to say, just make me a servant. Jesus would say, He who is greatest among you shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I would say this young man has been humbled. He's been humbled. So he arose and came to the father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I would imagine this would not be the reaction this young man thought would come from his father. Isn't this a beautiful picture? You know, I don't know if the... It, it's obviously a parable, so there, it's not, not anything implied about a porch, but I just, I just see the father sitting out there every day watching the road, waiting for his son to come home. And all of a sudden, in the distance, he sees a figure, and he knows it's him. And what does he do? Does he go in and shut the door and goes, somebody go tell that wicked guy to get away from me. No, he runs to him, he runs to him, and he grabs him, and he hugs him, and he kisses him. You know what keeps people from repenting, from coming back to the Father's house a lot? They're afraid of how people will react. I remember that. I lived in the far country for about four and a half, five years. And when I came back, I had a lot of fear and anxiety about that. You know, I project a lot of my own fears on other people, walk in the building and think, they're, they're all looking at me in judgment. I don't know what they were looking at me for. They are probably confused as why I was there. I thought, well, they probably all think they're better than me anyway, which that's probably true. <laughs> well, they don't really want me there. I mean, I'll just... I'll just stain the whole environment i mean there's all kinds of lies we can tell ourselves to not go home but i'll tell you when life humbles you it's time to go home and this boy's gone home and the father he, he didn't push him away he didn't reject him he opened his arms and he loved him and they celebrated the son starts to say his rehearsed speech. Remember, his plan is to say, just make me a servant. But he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops him right there. 
The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. He wants to be just a servant. That's fine with him. But the father says, no, you're a son. You're not a servant. You're my son. Don't just put a robe on him. You bring the best robe. And the best robe was one that they kept that was only reserved for nobility. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. You know what that is? He's restoring his position as his son. Put shoes on his feet. Let's celebrate. Go get the fatted calf and kill it. And let's celebrate. See, this is what happens when God's children come home. God celebrates. God's people celebrate. The angels in heaven celebrate. Are you in the far country tonight? Have you moved away from the Father? I want to read one last set of scriptures with you tonight as we close from the Psalms. Psalms chapter 63, 3 and 5. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. You can waste your life away trying to catch the uncatchable happiness and you'll never find it. But notice what he says here in verse 4. We shall be satisfied in the goodness of your house. Friends, God is waiting for you. And if you're in the far country tonight, come home. Come home. Let us go to the Father with you in prayer. We will pray to Him on your behalf. And what will He do? He'll forgive you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to restore you and to give you the peace that you desire, that you're looking for, to give you fulfillment in your life. Don't you want that? Come home. Come have a seat as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.